Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, gents. We are back for another podcast. And uh, we only had a podcast uh, about a week or so ago, and we're back again. So this is almost becoming like a regular thing, isn't it? It's like a proper podcast. You know, it's, uh, it's setting, a, setting a really good momentum at the moment. Um, well, in Wigan, well, of course, it's sun shining. It always shines in Wigan, mm. you know. So I think we need to start with the usual weather check. Uh, I will obviously we're on Skype, but I can see the videos here. I see, I can see you on the video screen, and I can kind of see the sun is shining through. Like you're going to get a sunburn on the right hand side of your face. There, it's going to be like Phantom of the Opera. Is the weather nice where you are, or is it just a very bright light outside? <laughs> sun shining in Birmingham. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So Wigan and Birmingham, it's sunny. Mike, are we making this a complete, uh, complete set? We are right now, but I'm not confident it'll stay the old podcast. We've had yeah. five seasons in the morning. We had hailstone hail storm this morning. We've had rain. We've had wind. Now we've got the sun, so yeah. it could all change. Yeah. I um, We went for a bike ride yesterday. We went for a mountain bike ride, and the weather here was like gusting up to 40, 50 mile an hour. We did about five, five and a half hours, I think, on the mountain bike. Shop was closed yesterday, so we went out for a big ride. About five and a half hours yesterday on the mountain bike. And we were just at kind of local trails and a bit of road and stuff. And there's a little bit of a hill near us called Billinge Lump, which is kind of between St. Helens and Wigan. It's where the, uh, the Wiganers used to hang out at the top of Billinge Lump, making sure no of St. Helens kind of came over into Wigan. It was like border patrol. And uh, as we got to the top of Billinge Lump, there was a massive gust of wind. And Dave, that I had a cycle with, it hit him side on and just flipped him over sideways. And that was pretty much the highlight of my day yesterday is watching Dave get hit by the wind and just blown completely off his mountain bike into a bush. But yeah, so a bit better today, a bit calmer today. And then I'm off to Lanzarote tomorrow, so I don't care what happens after that. Um, I think we should open with Tweets of the Week because we normally just start with Tweets of the Week, don't we? If people aren't familiar with what Tweets of the Week is, it's pr pretty much nonsense, to be honest. There's not really any value in it. But it is trying to sum up in 60 seconds, precisely 60 seconds, not five seconds more or five seconds less, your most recent three tweets. Um, there is, you are supposed to do it without looking at the clock, although I'm pretty sure that Mike cheats quite a lot, but you're not supposed to look at the clock. Um, so that is the name of the game. So uh, uh, Mike, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ian, are you going to time him? It's good to see that jealousy has now become a cheat accusation, but never mind. Not jealousy, it's just reality, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're under starter's orders, so I'm handing over to you, Ian. 
Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. Are you ready, Mike? Yep. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Cool. Tweet one is topical to your last sentence, Mark, about the bike crash yesterday. And that's, uh, I shared a study that's come out that's showing the more serious your accident, if you have a bike crash, then addressing some of the psychological issues of injury and particularly returning to bike is far more important than just rehabbing the person. When it comes to my second tweet, when it comes to rehabbing, is just a reminder to make sure that we rehab you back to the level of performance that you need, not just to the point of pain. I see a shortfall a lot of the time in athletes who rehab past to, to normal activities of daily living, but they don't go back to their full function. And then finally, my last tweet was one I posted last night about um, why running technique, when you try to improve it, sometimes makes you run worse for a little bit. The body will have to readjust its new motor patterns, its new feedback mechanisms, and you eventually will see improvements. But there may be a deficit at first, which shocks many. That is me. That's really long for me, that one. Well, Ian looks like he's about to start laughing. <laughs> we'll just stop that, Mark. He look at his, it looks like he should be stroking a cat. Look at his, like, got his evil look on his face. There's no point in <laughs> trying. What was so, it? One minute, zero seconds, and oh, point come seven. on. <laughs> My phone's That's literally going, cuffing it as well. My phone's going off here. Even people, someone's calling me, Aiden. They think you're cheating. <laughs> <laughs> You've been practicing all morning. Are we, are we going down to like the hundredths of a second? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, seven tenths of a second we have to get within. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay, do, are we, should we bother or? Yeah, do it. Okay. Right. <laughs> I might give you Guinness Book of Records actually, Mark, you might want to take that. I've got, to, I've got to switch my phone <laughs> yeah. on, um, on silent. Uh, I, I, that was a schoolboy error, that wasn't it. Let me put it on airplane mode. Right, so uh, Ian, do you want to go next? And uh, Mike, are you going to time Ian? Yeah, I'm going to try. Go start as orders, Ian. Yeah. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, so my first tweet was a, a research article that I tweeted. It's open access, so it's available to everyone to read. Um, and it was looking at um, tapers in marathon training. And what they'd done was looked at people's um, Strava files from 158,000 athletes and looked at the nature of people's tapers to see which ones were more effective. And this was with recreational athletes. So the average was about a 45-minute 10K, 355 marathon. What they found was that a three-week taper um, was the most effective. Um, and that could save you around about uh, five minutes, 2.6% um, performance over a a minimal taper in comparison. Second one was a retweet by Dan Nash uh, from someone called Matt Slater that I then retweeted and actually took part in the study. So it was a study on uh, pacing and marathon performance. So you complete the uh, questionnaire before your marathon and it's all about your thoughts around um, pacing and what you're planning to do in terms of your pacing and then you obviously get the performance data uh, to compare with that. Uh, so it sounds like an interesting study. And then my last one was going to be Mike's tweet about um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use uh, in sport and the dangers of using them in training and competition. But then just recently I saw the tweet about Andy Hayes being selected for the Euros. So I'm going to use that one. I, I tweeted earlier about that. So he's been selected for the marathon in the European Championships in Munich. That's me. Wow, fantastic. I mean, Andy Hayes, of course, a former guest on here as well. Fantastic 
performance at Manchester. So we should congratulate him. Although I don't think there's going to be many congratulations coming your way. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff you were talking about, I was. It sounds really, really interesting. The studies that you were saying. But gotta be honest, even by the end of the first one, I thought, is he gonna try and do three here? <laughs> <laughs> it's the irony that you did a tweet about pacing <laughs> and took 43 seconds on your first tweet. <laughs> I, I just have to demonstrate that I'm not cheating, you see. So yeah, that, but you managed great. a negative split because you got the last two in in the same and finished in 90 seconds. <laughs> do you know what? Now I actually feel slightly nervous. Because I think I've got a shot at getting second place today. <laughs> but I don't think there's any guarantees. <laughs> you know, with, 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 with Mike getting bang on 60 seconds, 60.0004 seconds or whatever it was, <laughs> I think the win is out of the question. <laughs> but the 92nd third place. Well, 59.6 would take a win because you wouldn't go over a minute. So, hang on, if you, go, if you go under a minute, you get bonus points. Well, 59.6 would be the same margin I went over, but you'd have been under, so you have to win it by default, surely. All oh, right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's messing with me up now, this. I'm ready. Right, ready? Three, two, one, go. OK. My first tweet is... Another one to do with our Tri Kids charity project, where we go around primary schools in the Northwest delivering triathlon for free. And uh, our March total, we've delivered to about 22,000 children now in the last 15, 16 months. And in this March, we delivered to 1,932 kids successfully. Second tweet is one that I put out about um, Ironman pace. A lot of questions people saying about what should I be training at Ironman pace? And I think actually for the bulk of people, if they can actually ride the whole bike at an easy pace, and then if they can just jog the whole marathon without stopping, that's probably successful. So I wonder if this Ironman pace things really exists for most people or whether it's just, you know, getting around and jogging it without stopping. And then the last tweet was just uh, to coaches, not to let your own preferences influence your, your coaching principles. I hear a lot of people who really like cycling saying things like, it's all about the bike. And people who don't like swimming generally say, oh, swimming's the least important thing. So never let your own preferences influence your coaching principles and advice. That's me. I must have beat Ian. 10727. Oh, now I'm disappointed I didn't take it more seriously. Yeah, safely into second. Your first one was bang on 20 seconds, although I, I here he goes. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. So, wow. I was nodding along reading that tweet the other day when you posted it about preferences. Yeah. I think you're so bang on the money with that one. Mm. People, and what it tends to be, it becomes a kind of, everybody kind of um, supports each other. What, what I'm trying, I'm not probably wording this correctly, but what you tend to get is that, that people who, who don't like swimming, who are not, either not good at swimming or don't like swimming, and those two things tend to go hand in hand, of course, will be saying, well, the swimming's the least important thing. It's not really that important. And it's the shortest discipline and, and blah, blah, blah. So they're, they're justifying why they don't want to do any swim training. And they tell that to people, to their athletes or their friends. And then those people buy into it. But it makes the first person feel better because other people are buying into it and they're kind of supporting each other. It makes me feel better if you're not swim training as well. That's what I'm trying to say. So it kind of creates this situation that goes round in a circle, you know. I don't want to swim train. 
So I'll tell you that swim training doesn't work or it's not important. And then if you don't train at swimming, it'll make me feel better for not training. And you get that a lot. You know, people should be swimming and biking, uh, swimming and running more. And they'll say it's all about the bike because they just like cycling because they don't like running. But it helps them if they can convince other people because they feel better if other people are not preparing equally as well. Did I explain that right? Mm-hmm. I think, and that includes yeah. if they're good at it as well. I think good or bad at something. Definitely, yeah. Developing yeah. your strengths, not your weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. And people definitely play towards those strengths, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's important to open up debate because we're often not aware of our biases as well. Whereas if we start discussing them and uh, asking other people, it can make us more aware of yeah where we might have a bias that we're not aware of. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I put a tweet out a couple of weeks ago, quite an interesting one this, because, again, social media, it's interesting how people can misread your tweet or misinterpret it. And I think some at times perhaps people purposefully misinterpret it because they've got their own agenda. But I put a tweet out something along the lines of saying about, you know, how Ironman is a, we break Ironman into three different sports, like it's a swim and then it's a bike and it's a run. But actually what it is for most people is a 14 to 15 hour continuous bout of aerobic exercise and however you want to look at it. And the, the danger of breaking it into three, of course, is that you're probably the longest training session anybody will do is six hours for a 14 hour event because it might be a six hour bike ride because they look, well, the bike's 112 miles. I'll be riding for six hours. I'll do a six hour training ride. But they don't take a step back and think, hang on, this is a 14 hour event. So the danger of breaking it into three sports is that you almost under train. So if you said to someone you're doing an event and it's a 14 hour bike ride, they'd probably go and do a training ride longer than six hours. But because it's an Ironman broken into three disciplines in their heads, they end up kind of, you know, but and I put it to that. So what when I was in Mallorca last year and I went out and did that Mallorca Ironman kind of last minute, what I remember is a lot of guys on the marathon. And they were all tooled up. They all had like 300 pound aero suits on and alpha flies and aero calf guards. And they were just walking the marathon. You know, because they just overcooked the bike so much and they just or just didn't have that basic aerobic endurance just to complete the full the full distance. Um, And what I meant by that tweet is that these guys looked like they were quite serious guys who were there to compete and clock a good time. And it wasn't a a mick take because they were wearing alpha flies. I wasn't trying to insult anybody. Um, but you can, you can, I think, it, you know, for, for Ironman racing, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a 14 hour event at the end of the day, isn't it? And it's interesting how you can break it into the disciplines. And of course, as we've just said, the key one is you have your favorite disciplines. And I think perhaps for Ironman, biking for the guys, that is the favorite discipline, isn't it? That's the sexy one that they all like. So uh, what is it they say? You ride for show and you run for dough. <laughs> um, so today's podcast, anyway, I'm rambling now. Today's podcast, I believe we are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about training camps um, because it's, uh, it is that time of year when a lot of people are getting abroad for some nice sunshine and some nice weather. And uh, Mike, uh, Twitter and Facebook's just full of people on training camps at the moment, Portugal and Mallorca and going to Lanzarote and all these places. And I know you've been uh, thinking quite a lot about this recently, haven't you, Mike? I have, yeah. Um, And it's mainly because of what I see in the week. Um, Obviously, training camps in the last five to ten years have become more popular, more accessible. There's more of them. And um, COVID put a stop to most of the people going away and doing stuff. 
all of a sudden now people are um, trying to get away because the opportunity is back. And I'm seeing a couple of trends in my week. I'm seeing people coming into clinic with more injuries as a result of training camps. I'm seeing people come to me with coaching questions where um, there's no events planned for the season, but training camps are booked. And it baffles me that you, well, what are you training for? What's the camp for? You know, if, if it's just a week away, being active, that's fine. But no, you've got this absolute specific camp you're planning to go on, but you don't know what you're training for as far as an event. And I find that's a sort of uh, horse and cart mucked around the wrong way sort of situation. And then thirdly, just getting lots of emails via social media or Facebook messages of people saying, um, what should I be thinking about? I'm thinking about going on a training camp. What sort of things would you suggest tips wise I should think about doing and not doing to choose the right camp. So that's why I thought it'd be a good one for us to chat about. I know we've all got experience with training camps in, in some form or other. So I thought we could give a quick intro into our own experiences with training camps to set the scene and then basically go, let's chew the fat for, for 10 minutes on each about what we should think, what someone should think about before they go on a camp, what they should think about on a camp and what they should think on the return. Could be like a do's and don'ts type thing, but more just a, what's our big take or messages on it. It's, it's I guess we're all pro camp in some respect, but um, but just a bit more nuanced. So Can should, we chat, should we give a bit of background in, in our own histories about, with training camps? Are you running any training camps or do you do any training camps yourself? Do you run any abroad? Not abroad anymore. You no. do some do some locally in South Wales. So I guess if, if I give you my background on it, um, as an athlete, I've been attending camps of all sorts over the years in the military. I was very lucky. We used to get a lot of opportunity to go away. So um, that then joined into triathlon clubs and, and um, cycling clubs that have allowed me lots of opportunities from probably mid-90s to probably 10 years ago. I stopped going so much with the kids and stuff. Um, as, an, as a therapist and sometimes as a coach, then I've been lucky and fortunate enough to go and be a resident therapist on camps, some commercial camps, some elite camps, some local clubs have, have tagged me along to go away. So I've seen it from that side of it. Um, and then, yeah, locally in the last five years, I've been doing lots, mainly ultra running camps, funny enough, but um, ultra running camps locally in South Wales, which are um, the USP being very much it's educational camps with a bit of training thrown in rather than big training volume based camps. So it's basically come come and attend one of my courses, but we'll do some runs while we're here, so you don't feel bad about missing training while you're away. I'm just just putting it out there that we could run a camp abroad, the three of us. Just saying. Could do. We could do. Yeah. We'll talk about that off there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm interrupting. Go on, sorry, Mike. So that's my background. What's what's yours, Ian? So my, mine's more from sort of. Um working with and speaking with people that have been on them rather than me personally using them it's not something i i, I mean I, I have competed in triathlon but not quite a lot uh, for a lot of years but i think it is probably something that is more um associated with um with triathlon um, i think in ultra running you like you just mentioned there mike you get more um where it might be educational around you do navigation or be about learning skills on scrambling on particular rough terrain and so on where someone else might guide it um because obviously you can do a lot more volume on a camp when you're doing uh three disciplines than when you're doing one um but i've certainly worked and discussed the you know sort of the the pros and cons and some of the 
issues with camps with a, a lot of athletes that have been on them. Um, and it, as well, including sort of runners and elite runners who are sort of working um, and maybe going for a specific purpose, such as altitude training. So quite specialised camps as well. Um, and I think yeah, we'll get into this a little bit later, but yeah, thinking about the specific purpose and what you're looking to get out of a camp is an important thing to, to think about. And that's certainly something that has, uh, has come back for me when you talk to people and work with people that are going on camps is that if you haven't got a clear purpose, then uh, um, you, you can fall into a lot of the pitfalls. Um, how about you, Mark? Um, yeah, I've been training camps for many, many years. So we used to run our own training camps in the UK called base camps. And we used to do, run quite cheap and cheerful, get like a hostel up in the Lake District. And you could get 20, 30 guys and girls going up there. We had great, they were generally weekends. And then we've uh, run lots of swim camps and some running camps, some ultra stuff linked to Lakeland 100. And then the last few years, we've pretty much been going out to Lanzarote doing, we do two week long camps in Lanzarote every year. Um, but it's just been stuffed with COVID, unfortunately. We were supposed to be going this February, and we kind of had good interest. But we just decided when the um, I forget now is it was it was it the Omicron the Christmas one? Yeah. yeah. And as yeah. soon as Omicron kind of kicked off, then people were just reluctant to book for February. So we should have had a couple of camps in February, but we ended up um, uh, uh, cancelling those. And we're just going to start back again either this October or next February. But yeah, lots of camps abroad and camps here in the UK. Is that in La Santa, Mark? So we did use La Santa originally. And the problem with La Santa is it's just expensive. Great place when you go there, you know, everybody's walking around. It looks like an athlete. So you kind of feel like you're in a real proper sporting environment. But we would use, for the camps um, that we used, uh, when we moved on from La Santa, we switched to on the other side of the island, work at Costa Teguise. And there's a hotel there uh, called the Occidental. It's one of the Barcello hotels. And they've got a really big, uh, I think it's 10 lane, 50 meter pool, out, outdoor pool. And that was, that was fantastic. So it was just a lot more, um, a lot more affordable for people, whereas La Santa is just very, very expensive. So not far from Sands Beach, you know, I'm going to Sands Beach next week. And Sands Beach is OK, it's got, only got a 25 meter pool. So it's struggling a little bit in terms of volume if there's lots of camps booked in to get this winter time. But the pool at Occidental is fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Costa de Guise is nice. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those places you get... You go on holiday many years ago and then you realise it's become this really popular place and you think, oh, should have tapped into that a bit quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It can be a bit more sheltered from the wind on that side as well. Yeah, yeah, cool. So I guess from a, a health point of view, for us sharing that experience to athletes, I think it'd definitely be good to get uh, a few minutes later on picking your brains, Mark, about what goes into organising the camp because a lot of these people just turn up and think it's you know oh we've all just landed on the plane and it, it's going to take care of itself but the stresses and strains of a coach and an organiser running it but if someone came to you with the uh, I really want to go on a camp what, what do I need to think about beforehand so the things you need to think about as a pre and these could be the literal things they need to do or more the the bigger picture thinking planning preparation stuff what would your top tips be um be as far as the pre-camp thinking? Um, I think if you're going to book on a training camp, there's a few things to consider. So the first of all, you've, you've mentioned a few of these in the introduction, didn't you? So first of all, what are your goals for the year? So some camps are very specific, like long distance camps, aren't they? You know, so if we, I mean, I, I know, we, you know, there are a friend of mine runs lots of open water swim camps 
and there are obviously trail running camps and there's triathlon camps. So there's multiple sports. So let's just presume just as an example that they're a triathlete. And if they're a triathlete, are you a long distance or are you uh, training for shorter distance? Because a lot of the camps will be specific to long or short distance. So what, what is it you're training for? And is the camp orientated towards the distances and the disciplines that you're training for? I think it's also just worth thinking about your strengths and weaknesses as well. So if, for example, you are a very weak swimmer and you need a lot of technical support with your swimming, then you might want to try and choose a camp that has more swim focus and maybe where there's some tuition or some video or whatever it may be. Whereas uh, if you go on a camp that does minimal swimming and it's a big biking week, you've maybe missed an opportunity there to, you know, to, to maximise that time. You could have had a, a week of concentrated uh, tuition on your swimming. And in that case, maybe as a triathlete, you might want to consider just going on a swim camp because that might be something that you really get a lot from. So what are your strengths and weaknesses? And then I just think maybe just find out a little bit about those groups and their abilities as well. It's, I mean, as from an organising perspective and, and from a participant perspective, it's very difficult. If you go to, like, let's take Lanzarote as an example, to go to Lanzarote and have two, three different cycling groups when you've got people of a huge range of abilities on such tough terrain where it's very hilly and windy, keeping those people together in groups. So I think it's just pitching it right and having a good chat to the organisers and saying, look, this is my ability. Where do I sit here? So am I going to be fighting all day and not be able to ride with the group? Or, you know, am I going to be off the front and be one of the stronger riders or what is? So just finding out where they're pitching it. Is it at the novice level? Is it in the intermediate? Is it the advanced? Are they catering for everybody? Yeah, so I'd say, look at your goals. Does it match up with your strengths and weaknesses? What is it you want to work on while you're there? And then is it suitable for you and your standard, your ability? So probably they're the basic three things to start with. Yourself, Ian. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything Mark said there. It's obviously, you know, we generally think in terms of um, you know, volume for camps, because obviously there's that time available and, uh, to do the sort of high levels of volume. So you need to think about where you are in your current training program yourself and whether that fits with that and that's where you are we've talked in the past about you know sort of periodizing volume and quality in our training depending on where we are in the training season and when our main objectives are um so you need to think about the timing of the camp as well and whether it fits with that um if your focus is more on quality then maybe that's not the right at that point in time maybe that's not the right time because that's a harder thing to to, to get the quality right for your particular training, as Mark's just described, that is going to be quite difficult to achieve because if you're doing high volume and uh, and the quality is generally low, then the, there's a greater range that you can have across the group um, in doing that. Um, also, are you thinking, are there some specific components that you want to incorporate? So it might be that you want to do some heat acclimatization um, as part of the camp. So are you going for the right place? Are the conditions going to be suitable for that? And obviously that would be linked to an event that you're training for. Um, and also altitude is you want to think about, you know, is, is that a purpose? Is that something you're looking for? And then therefore you might be looking for a very specific type of camp or location for the camp uh, to do that. But yeah, you do need, you need to have a very um, clear purpose um, for why you're going there and making sure that you're selecting the right camp for that. Uh, and Mark mentioned there in terms of uh, identifying, having clear goals. And I would, you know, 
puts very specific limits around those goals as well in terms of what you're planning to do while you're there because it's very easy to get carried along um, with what's happening on the camp and getting pulled along with others. So you, you might have goals not just around the actual activities that you're doing, but also what you're going to be doing in terms of nutrition, recovery uh, and sleep uh, to try and make sure that you're, you're getting the most from the camp and not necessarily getting pulled into what other people are doing and doing things that are sort of outside your plan and your goals uh, and objectives for the camp. Um, and also thinking about how you're going to monitor effort levels and volume while you're there. Um, you, know, you might be an athlete that normally run, uh, um, operates around perceived exertion, but that might not be so suitable in your camp because often uh, you get carried along with the excitement of the camp and things that um, would normally, you know, when RPE might be normally a useful indicator, it might feel easier than it is and you might actually be overworking yourself. Um, so just think about how you're going to monitor that and how that fits around the goals that you're setting for your, for your camp. Yeah. Um, was I always forget when you go last, you two have normally said everything else you want to say before you say it. So <laughs> lots of confirmation there. I was ticking off my list. I think certainly the physio in me is um, is screaming out, you know, really think about the timing of your camp. I see the, I've seen people go for a late summer 100 mile run and the training camp they're going on is for heat acclimatization and massive volumes in Feb. And you're just like, it's just too soon. There's no need. You're not going to get anything out of it. The mistake I always see is people trying to use a training camp to catch up lost training. So it's there. I can get a chance to catch up those weeks. I've not gone out on the, in the cold nights or I've not done the, the gym work that I should have done or whatever. And suddenly come back with big problems. I've seen some athletes come back with, with from a, a, a training camp that has sensible planning and execution. But to them, they've spiked their training load to 200, 250% from the weeks before. And it's been the worst thing they could have done. And that volume isn't necessarily the bad thing, but how they've got to it's the problem. So think about it, prepare for it, and maybe train for the camp to get the best out of it. You know, don't just think, oh, I'll be all right. I've got the camp in five weeks. I think um, I really agree with what Mark said about thinking what who's running it and what you're getting out of it. The eyes on versus the just group stuff. Um, from a technical point of view, it might be a fantastic opportunity, depending on who's coaching, to get some real insights. Because what I always say to a lot of athletes asking me is, is the question you should ask yourself is, what will I bring back from this camp? What will I learn that I can then use every day when I come back? So um, is there a technical thing? Is there a, a mechanical thing? Is there something there that I can come back and use rather than just see it as a a block of training that is uninterrupted by work, family and everything else. Um, and then I guess on a more practical level, my last tip would be think about where you're going. So the weather, the terrain, what kit do you need? Um, I, I've been on camps where literally people turn up in a um, somewhere like the Canary Islands at a certain time of year where they know we've got a good chance of rain or wind. And they have completely inappropriate kit because they've turned up with their shorts and their sunglasses thinking, oh, it's better than the UK. Um, likewise, if you know you're going on a very technical sort of uh, cycling week, maybe you need to think about your bike setup before you come out and just what, what, what things you might be doing. Because you might assume there's a mechanic there and there's not a mechanic there. And all of a sudden it's like, mm, I'm on the back foot straight away. But I think um, the final point I would say would be it's absolutely fine on training camps to push yourself to get something out of it. 
but don't forget your own capabilities going. If you're someone who's, whose body likes to run twice a week with a couple of days in between, suddenly thinking because the sun's shining and it's, uh, it's a nice little place you're staying in, you can run four times consecutive days is going to be fine. Then you just walk in that tightrope, which we don't like to see endurance athletes walking. So again, I guess all just comes down to planning. So if we move then into the in-camp stuff, what's what's your thinking around the in-camp stuff? So I guess now what you've got is an opportunity of five to ten days normally where you haven't got the distractions of work, you haven't got the distractions of family sometimes, you haven't got the distractions um, of things that get in the way of training. And it's an opportunity sometimes to try new things or to double down on things you you might use already. What what would you offer as, as guidance for that stuff? Um, so you are right. You've got a week without the family. Oftentimes the family come with you. But yeah, you certainly don't have to think about work. I would say in terms of managing that week, is that what we're talking about? So how, can, how you kind of manage your own week? So what we see for every camp, biggest problem that we get is people blowing themselves to pieces in two days. Happens every single camp. So we have ways of dealing with that, and we can talk about that later. But this is the most common thing you see is people, it's like a smash fest on day one out on the bike, everybody's excited, sun's shining, shorts are on for the first time in 2022, get out and just absolutely batter each other in the first couple of days. So what it, we try our best to control this, and I said there's ways you can do this, but I think in a lot of camps, what you see is people doing all of the sessions in the first two days, maybe skipping some in the next couple of days. And then by the time they get to the end of the week, they're missing maybe a full day. So their participation just deteriorates over the week because they haven't balanced their energy levels. So I think that's the biggest thing is getting over that initial excitement when you arrive and not just, you know, lads on Facebook and Twitter bragging about the fact they've got this huge TSS score within the first two days. And then actually they just stop taking part then for the rest of the week. So as a coach running it, how do you try and address those things? So it depends. Well, what you can do is for a start is how you plan your activities. So if they're doing the activities that we're planning at our paces, then we will purposefully plan them. So we know they're not going to go and smash themselves in the first couple of days. So, for example, we quite often run a time trial on the bike just for a bit of fun. We might have a mountain time trial that will tend to be towards the end of the week. So most of the stuff early will be will be controlled, um, uh, you know, and it, we, we tend to do a lot a lot more volume at easier intensity, and uh, for various reasons again, which we kind of talk about a little bit later on. But we tend to do more volume stuff at lower intensity, not as much very high intensity stuff that burns people out. Um, but what's fascinating is if you put a time trial towards the end of the week. Earlier in the week, you're trying to get people to slow down and ride at the right pace. It's amazing how many of the guys, the kind of overcompetitive ones, will soft pedal for the first two to three days because they know there's going to be a time trial later on in the week and they're too scared that they're going to get beaten by some of the other guys later on in the week. So it's remarkable psychologically how something as simple as that, it's not important at all, it's just a bit of a fun time trial up a mountain. It's not like it's a proper race or anything, but things like that, People are thinking about it from day one and they listen to what you're saying on the first couple of days and slow down and ride at right intensity. 
So you can manipulate and plan the sessions according to that. Do you ever see, I've seen somewhere, the majority definitely say about going too hard too quick, but you see some who are so fearful of burning out, they almost hold themselves back. Yeah. By midweek, they're trying to get something out of the camp because they've undercooked themselves almost. See yeah. much of that? Yeah, sometimes. I think I say some of the, um, certainly the stronger ones, if they're kind of, uh, if they've not been on a camp before and they're worried about the entire volume. But I think when they know there's something more competitive later in the week, they certainly, and that's a good way of doing it, having a little race on the final weekend, or even if the training camp ends with an actual event, they're more likely to, to hold themselves back a little bit more because they know there's an event on the Saturday or Sunday before they fly back. Um, but I mean, you know, we, we've talked a lot about training and what kind of training should people should be doing in the 80-20, and we cover all of that in our podcasts. And I'm just a fan anyway of getting people to, you know, one of the things we've said a million times on this podcast is people don't do their easy stuff easy enough. So I think training camps for us, it tends to be a really good opportunity to show people how easy the easy stuff should be. So you have a running group and whoever's leading that running group or leading that cycle group, you don't go any faster than that person. And it's, so you can go out for a three, four hour enjoyable ride in the sunshine but there's a lot they can still learn on a three, four hour easy ride. There's lots of things they can learn without it having to be something structured and intervals and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things we try to teach people is if you want to do this kind of volume from day one, let me show you the intensity that you must ride at, the speed you should be swimming at, the speed you should be running at. Now, there's some good examples there about what we were talking about in terms of preparation beforehand because if you're really clear on what your goals are and your objectives uh, and you set the plan in advance before the, so you get pulled in in the moment then you've got much better chance of sort of controlling um, yourself when you're in those situations and selecting the right group to be in going out for the right amount of time if there's different time options uh, and working at the right intensity um, and, and yeah the, the example of the you know the race or the time trial towards the end of the week um, uh, influencing what people do earlier in the week um, again that, that can sort of temper people and, and and discourage them from you know overcooking themselves in the uh, beginning of the camp but it might still not be optimal for what they're doing in terms of their overall training plan uh, in that so they're, they're, they're optimizing the camp for performance and in the race later in the week aren't they so you know that that is probably still better than them cooking themselves in the first two days and not getting the most from the camp. But if you've got a very clear plan, and I assume most camps are going to be sending out an itinerary in advance and what the different options are. Into, so you can have a very clear plan of what you're going to do and how you will operate and utilise each of those sessions for, for, your, for your benefit towards what your season objectives are, not objectives for that week. You're going to get a lot more from the camp. And I think it's a, uh, like you've mentioned there, Matt, it's a really good lesson for people in terms of learning you know, how to control your own training and because people do have a problem in training at a low enough intensity when they're doing the volume work. So that, that is something that you can actually learn on the camp that can take a benefit into your training more broadly. Mm. Um, well, you know, we, we, I remember we, when you came and did the, remember we did the uh, charity evening up in Wigan and you came up and talked and we were kind of chatting a little bit then about this and going back to something that said then about, about sports psychology because when you talk about sports psychology, everybody instantly thinks about sports psychology as a race day strategy. 
If I, any athlete that I know, if I said, you know, how would you employ sports psychology? They'd start talking about, ah, oh, you know, mindset and what I'm doing on race day and plan A and plan B and all this kind of stuff. They veer towards race day. That's what sports psychology is for. But then everything starts with psychology, doesn't it? So whether you can be asked getting up in the morning and doing the training session, whether you do the training session at the correct intensity, it all, it all starts with psychology. Everything is psychology. You know, we so focus so much on the physiology and the, the writing the training plan and the session and what heart rate should it be at, what power should it be at. But you'll know, like, it, we'll go out on an average Sunday ride with a local club and there's always one guy who just cannot ride with the bunch. And he has to go up every single hill and drop everyone else. Is that insecurity? Is he just not thinking about anything at all? Is it fear? Is he trying to show other people how strong he is? So, you know, what's going on in that person's head? And I think if people can't even master that on an average Sunday ride, what chance have they got of employing any kind of strategy on a race day? If they can't even do it on a general training set. So I think for us, when we do very simple sessions, uh, on the training camps, stuff like that. It's a really good opportunity to get the group together and go, you know, I've been banging on all the time saying the easy session should be easy. Right. I'll show you now how easy it should be. And 60% of them will say, ah, right. I didn't realise it should be this easy. And no matter how many times you tell them. So it's, it's a good opportunity to be there with people, isn't it? And, and that, so, you know, we tend to do, most of our camps tend to be high volume, a lot of easy stuff. But I said, there's a lot of things within that camp you can still learn whilst you're doing that. And for me, that, you know, pacing strategies and stuff are, are really, really important. No, absolutely. I mean, your body responds and adapts to the training that you do, not the training that you plan or that you think you're going to do. And if people are, you know, you're right, a lot of people focus on race day, but psychology is so important in the training as well. And if there's a big sort of, uh, mismatch between the, the, what you're planning to do in training and what you're actually doing then you know psychology is at the, uh, at the root of that isn't it and you need to think you know what is it that's leading me to be training ineffectively because i can't you can't evaluate a training program and how effective it is unless you actually follow it um uh, and it, at times listen to your body and adapt to it as well so mindlessly following a plan when you're too tired to do a session is as problematic as training too hard when you're meant to be training easy as well. So, you know, we need to be reflecting on how closely we are sticking to our plan and more broadly, but that applies uh, even more so when you're on camp because you've got these external factors that are you know, going to be heavy, heavily influencing you towards doing things that you haven't planned to do. Yeah, yeah. I would say on a camp, I'm going to, I'm going to play the gender card here again. I'd say on a camp, generally never have problems with the ladies trying to prove points and smash each other on the first climb on the first day. It's only the fellas. I'll put that one there. <laughs> this is what it's like on day one. You know, the fellas all trying to rip chunks out of each other to prove a point and then they're not turning up for training by day four. So I'm, I'm going to give the ladies extra bonus points. <laughs> in the psychology point, I remember being on a open water swim camp in Gibraltar. And the first thing that we did on the, um, in the morning of day one was every swimmer had to come out and they had to write on a board three things they were definitely going to do on that camp and three things they were definitely going to avoid doing. And it could be completely individual. It could be performance related. It could be, I'm going to go to bed before 10. I'm not going to drink too many beers. It could be whatever it was. But effectively then they were shared with the group and shared with a, a buddy and they were give, just given, you know, very visible, very overt accountability for that camp. 
and there was never any need. It was a military camp, so there was a discipline element, but there was never a need for discipline because they'd all just put their own barriers in place. And I thought that was a really nice thing to do. Obviously, um, it depends on your audience. I think um, I think what I would throw into from my experience is, um, and there's a little bit of context with these. So on one hand, don't try lots of new things. It's an it is a place to try slightly new experiments, but they need to be things that are have a purpose. Again, what am I learning from it? So where I'm a big fan of people trying new things, for example, ice baths, recovery massages, all the stuff that when you're doing those really high, intense, consolidated periods of training, we see evidence in the literature to support these things could have a positive effect. What we don't see, though, is that the odd random ice bath once a week, once a month when you're home, when training's ticking over, isn't of much benefit. But if you don't try them in similar situations, you won't know when to try them at big blocks at home. You won't know whether they work the day before a race. Much better to go for that time trial that you were mentioning, Mark, on, on the last day of camp. Try an ice bath the day before. Wheels fall off in the race because your body hasn't reacted well to the ice bath. And all of a sudden, you know, I probably won't try that in a real important race when I get home. So it is a chance to experiment and try things and and have a little go at things while you've got the opportunity to do it. I think um, absolutely maximise the chance to sleep. We know that's the power, the superpower for recovery. And it's easy when you're there and you've got a nice day's training and the sun's on your face to have a couple of beers in the night. And obviously we're not discouraging people relaxing and enjoying being away. But it's the ones where that one or two beers turns into five or six beers and it 10 o'clock bed turns into midnight and they can't work out on day three or four why they're just really struggling around the track or struggling to to perform in, in certain sessions. So just think, you know, we don't ask people to, to, some people like to go for fun and it's nothing, they don't want to be that serious with it. But if your training camps are something that's spread into the recreational mass participant audience, that was once the bastion of those elites and the pros. And I do think to get the most out of a camp, try to treat yourself like a pro or an elite when you're there. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be serious or, or, or um, too too overly dedicated with it, but do, do have fun. And then the last one, which again, I see this all the time. I remember a guy going on a tri-camp that I was on. And on the first two days, whilst doing everything that was available, simply forgot simple stuff like putting on sun cream, got himself sunstroke by day two and missed the rest of the camp lying in his hotel room being tended to by people on the camp just to make sure he was okay. So a real simple oversight, but easily done. Um, and I think, oh, the other thing I threw in, which I scribbled down while um, while you were saying about the going really hard at the start, you will get those alpha personalities, those type A's who just want to go hard. And I just think with those guys, plan yourself a rest day. It's okay to have a rest day when you're away. Maybe right off day three, have a day by the pool. And then go and smash yourself day one and two. Smash yourself day four and five. Have a rest day day six again and race on the seventh day or whatever. It's okay to, to break from the mould of what everyone else is doing if you just go, I cannot conform to what they really want me to do here. You just put yourself some buffers in place to protect yourself for when you come back. Shaking his head up there. Cool. 
I'd ask why they feel they can't conform. Yeah, no, I would too. <laughs> I would too. But um, but you will get those who just I just want to do my own thing. So yeah. um, so I guess it, it just helps them a little bit. So they've picked the right camp. They've gone on the camp. They've had a great time. They've come back. What would be your advice as they leave for the things they should do when they get back for the first however many weeks, days, you want them to consider stuff? I think you've got to be... If you've done a big week of training, like you say, it's, it is quite possible for people to, you know, double the volume in a, on a training camp. And I know that sounds a little bit irresponsible to kind of double your normal weekly volume. But if they do it well, and bear in mind they don't have to be at work, because let's face it, when the sun's shining on your back, you don't have to be at work. It's amazing the powers of recovery that you have. It always makes me realise when I go in training camps that it's not just training that causes the fatigue, it's being at work all day and all the other stresses. Because when you remove those, it's unbelievable how much training you can still do and feel fresh. Um, but then given that they have done such a high volume or and, and intensity, whatever else they've done, you do very always have to be careful coming back because I think there is a tendency then to think I can just go straight back into my normal training plan. And, you know, what's the term that they, uh, that they use? Is it super compensation? The point is, if you double your training load in a week, what you really should be doing is halving your training load the following week to get the adaptation from the stress. So, so yeah, be very careful of just coming back and thinking you can waltz back into a normal training week because you have increased your training load so much, you probably need to just take a little bit step back when you get back to the UK and just let those adaptations occur. Or, or even maintain a high volume because now I've, I've up my volume now on the camp so I, uh, that's my training volume now is higher than it ever was which is even more dangerous isn't it yeah that's right yeah try and keep that rolling over that pattern going yeah um yeah one of the ones i had for um uh, actually links into something i would do during the camp as well which is keep a diary keep a close record of how you're feeling and, and uh at, immediately after each of the sessions but each day day on day um and then i think that's really useful and important afterwards to then reflect on that diary um and look at what worked for you um, what was most effective what what did you do that you would want to take forward into future camps um but also what would you not want to do maybe where where you pulled into other activities or where do you do things that weren't beneficial um it could include some of those recovery activities that Mike mentioned as well that you might, because you've got that additional time when you're on camp, you try things out, but when you come back home, you're not going to have time for all of those things, but which were the ones that were really helping you sort of recover that you want to maintain and, and try and find time for in your own um, sort of normal training routine? Um, and yeah, the, and then making sure that you've got a record of what you would do uh, on camp in the future because it's, it's going to be probably going to be minimum six months before you go on camp again so it's very easy to forget and then make the same mistakes again the next time you go out. Um, I agree that's literally everything I had written down you two have just bloody mentioned make, make the camp count physically you know whether you whether you if you time a camp appropriately it may be that you're then entering a taper phase for your race so don't get carried away and, and, and lose the taper um, or likewise you know, what is the springboard the camp's provided? What's the next six or 12 weeks of your season now need to look like um, to make the, the full value of that one count? 
And then literally I wrote, you know, reflect on camp, what do you want from the next six months? But literally as well, what Ian said, what do you want from future camps? Because it's, you know, it's time, it's money. Most people take leave to go on these things. And as we said, there's a nice thing sometimes to be away from family and stuff, but it's also something you've got to really make sure you make the most of. So um, you might go and I've been on camps, I come back and I've literally gone, I'd never go on that camp ever again. I enjoyed it, I got something out of it, but it was just wrong camp, wrong time, wrong, wrong thing for me. So, um, so what else is, is is there? So, so whether it's, I guess, one thing for the post, which could be similar to the pre, is just do your due diligence and have a look around and make sure you find the right camp or the right coach. And you know, don't don't be baffled by a fancy website or a glossy image. Dig a bit deeper, find out who's on the course, or who's on the camp, what they're running, what they're doing, um, and if they'll benefit you as you move forward. Cool. What are your, the last thing I was going to say about was, um, what's your thoughts on, I see much more of this in the ultra running world, but the self-designed camps. So people who effectively just go away, a couple of them in a gang, arrange their own training week and, and execute it themselves. See any different mistakes, anything good or bad with those ones? Um, I mean, I would say the danger of that is probably more so if you're a bunch of mates going away, I think it'd be a smash fest in the first couple of days. You know, if you want it to be a smash fest and you just want to do that, that's fine. But I think the only danger is you haven't got anybody reining you in, have you? So there's no kind of single authoritative person who is saying, I'm in charge here, I'm the coach, and we're going to ride at this speed. And um, so I think it's more likely it, it's a social uh, trip away, isn't it? Um, but um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing. If you, you know, there's no problem arranging your own, but you might want to, you know, consult with your coach beforehand or whatever, and have a bit of a plan before you go what you want to, what you're going to do to speak to your coach and say, "I'm going. What shall I do this week?" And um, and then do your best to try and control it a little bit because I think, like, yeah, gang of mates, it just just become a bit of a a bit of a smash fest, and maybe this and it'll become a bit disjointed because if it's a little group of mates, you might all decide, "Well, I want to do this, and I'm going to do that." So there isn't actually any pathway. It's just multiple opinions, you know. Um, but um, one of the things I would say, if just I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, is um, from from an organizer's perspective, having organizing camps as well, we do have to. I'm trying to take into account what do people want. So we're asking this question: when you're going, you know, what what is it that you you want to get out of the camp? But as an organizer, I'm trying to guess that the answer to that question. And um, so you've got to try and kind of tick those boxes as well. And some of the things sometimes we talked about people, you know, are you just going for the social element? Are you going for the training element? And I do think there's got to be a good balance there of the two. So as a simple example, when if we were in a camp in Lanzarote and the weather's nice and they've come out for a week in the sunshine, and I said, we're going to really work on quality and we're going to do interval training, so we're going to set the turbos up at the side of the pool and all the sessions are going to be controlled. The response I'd get from most people is we're in Lanzarote, we want to go out and ride our bikes. So I think you've got to take that balance of, OK, what do people want? They've come to expect something. We want to go for a swim. We want to swim in the sea at some point and we want to go and ride our bikes up a mountain and we want a cafe stop. Because I think it's for a lot of people, it is as well as a training camp, it's a holiday. So it's getting the balance between a holiday and the, the enjoyment side. But within that, what structure can you add so they're also learning stuff and it isn't just a holiday? So I think you have got to cater for that side of it as well. 
Yeah, I think um, just to pick up on a couple of things that Mark said there, he, um, the, the, the question by Mike around sort of you self-designed camps, the, the big risk there is you've got far less flexibility in terms of, you know, making sure the camp suited to your needs. You know, if you're, if you're in a properly organised camps with, with sort of three different groups, if you're tired one day, you can drop into another group and ride at a lower intensity. If you're there in a small group, it's very difficult to do that. So it's going to be hard to sort of design that. So fits the needs of everyone within that uh, group. And then just in terms of what Mark said there, and, you know, you, there's the needs and the requirements of the individuals in advance and trying to meet those for the organiser. But also, um, if the organiser is asking you for information about you know what you want to get from it, but they might also ask questions about what your current level is and your current volumes of training. So important that you're honest when you're doing that so that you actually say what you're actually doing at the moment and what level you're at because then the camp's much more likely to be suited to you rather than you trying to think, well, this is what I should be doing. And I don't want them to think as though I'm, you know, I'm not at the right level to be on the camp. So I'll sort of exaggerate a little bit. You know, be as honest as you can, and then there's much more likely there's going to be groups for you to, to ride with and, uh, and train with. I just, just say, it, the, the other thing that you don't see a lot of, and because people are competing for business, I guess, with training camps, but we will quite often set a minimum requirement you need to be able to ride this far at this speed to come on the camp. And that can appear elitist, but it's not elitist. I just don't want someone to have a miserable week because they can't keep up and end up missing sessions. You know, so if you go to Lanzarote, for example, it's going to be windy. In whichever direction you ride, it's going to be a massive hill. That's just the nature of the beast. So if you can't ride 60 miles in the UK at 16, 17 mile an hour on average, you're going to have a hell of a time in Lanzarote. So you, I think it's good to set those minimum requirements for customers as well. And just to be fair to them to say, you know, you might want to train up to come to the camp and be prepared, you know, because Mike said a point earlier about people catching up on training at camps. And that's what we, you can sometimes that danger of, I've not done any training, so I'm going to come to the camp and you're going to get me fit. Now, you, there is a certain level of fitness required for you to come on this camp. And if you don't have that level of fitness, this isn't about trying to sound elitist, but you won't be able to do the sessions and keep up. So there is that basic requirement to be there. And people should be honest about that as well, because you could easily just not say anything because we need people to sign up because we need the money. And I think that probably happens at some camps. And then you kind of left to your own devices a little bit. So we do try and make that very clear. You know, we've said to quite a few people, it's probably best if you don't come on the camp because, you know, you're not, not going to be able to complete it, basically. Well, as an organiser, Mark, you've got a liability and health and safety responsibility there as well. That's That runs, which most of those don't think about. You know, you'd soon be the first one to get blamed if someone couldn't keep up and became ill when you've already told them. And and also, bike handling skills can't descend and then you put them coming down switchbacks on a mountain. You know, and, and they're getting off and walking because they're petrified. Yeah. You know, so, which I know has happened, but not, it's not under one of our camps, but it does happen. The organiser finds out on the camp that they can't ride down a mountain, can't make right hand, can't make left hand turns. I've had that one as well, you know, things like that. So it's, yes, yeah, so you've got to be really be careful about that with the descending skills. And I actually went back earlier, you were talking about our, because, you know, my view on 80, 20 and volume and riding easy and all that, we tend to do bigger volume camps and, and slow people down so they can manage the week. But within that, there's lots of things you can do. People, you know, if you, if you look at that classic group format, going out with a cycling club where they ride in pairs on each other's wheel, 
a lot of people have never done that. Just getting them to ride in a group in pairs, you know, riding close to the wheel in front, people are terrified. Descending skills, descending safely, right, descending on the tops and the hands aren't even covering the brakes, you know, and just teaching people, not the pedals, not up on the, as they're going around the corners and things like that. So descending confidently, fingers on the brakes, all that. You talked about bike fitting. Some people, you know, in particular, the ladies' bikes not set up correctly. They can't reach the brakes when they're on the drops with the fingers. They can't actually reach the brakes and they never even realise this. So they, they have their hands on the hoods because it's the only way they can pull the brakes. So setting the brakes up right for descending and all these kind of things so, and getting the nutrition right and practising nutrition. There's a lot of things you can do on a four-hour easy ride in the sunshine. There's a lot of things that people can learn from the camp. But, uh, but yeah, you're right, you get a whole vast array. And it's quite important that you, as an, as an organisation, a liability, you have to have these things laid out in advance. This is what we're going to be doing. So, you know, if you can't descend, if you can't ride those distances, you need to have that conversation beforehand. Is, is there any um, medical requirements for people to come on your course? No, I, mean, I think it tends to be in years gone by, when you ask questions about people's medical background, and, and if you, most people here will have entered a triathlon, if you're listening to this, or entered a running race, or entered a swimming race, or whatever, and it will have said, do you have any medical conditions? And if you've ticked, yes, I have this medical condition, these are the details, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that the organisers probably never contacted you to say, are you safe to take part in this event? And that's because you're not answering those questions for the organiser, you're answering them to the stored on a system. So if you have an issue in the event, by entering, you're deeming yourself fit to do the event. If you have a problem and the organisers have to attend to you with the medics, your medical record is there that, ah, this person is diabetic and you're telling the medics that. So we do take people's medical details. We've never been in a position where we've said to people, oh, you had a heart operation six years ago, so we're not going to let you come because that person knows themselves better than we do. Um, but we do have to collect all of those details and ensure that we can access them. And any coaches riding with any of the groups or running with any of the groups can access those details if needed. And then there's a whole, um, again, I'm waffling a little bit here, but there's a whole host of things like um, if you're in Lanzarote or in Spain and there's an accident, what's the number for the ambulance? And if you can't speak Spanish, is that all right? <laughs> So all of these little things need to be taken into account. You know, where are we? How do you give, you know, how do you phone an ambulance and tell them where you are? So, uh, so yeah, all those little things must be boxed off as they would be in the UK, but some things are a little bit more complicated when you go in abroad. But all of those things need to be ticked off because, and it's not just a liability and insurance thing, it's just a basic safety thing. You know, if one of your mates comes off his bike, you kind of want to know what to do to give him the best care. So, um, so there is a whole host of things like that that we have to uh, have to do beforehand. Brilliant. Anyone got any more points? Anything else to bring up? I think uh, well, just yeah, one one thing really, just in terms of the type of camp. So we've obviously mainly focused on camps abroad and ones that are focused on you know people's main training. But we did touch upon early on sort of camps in the UK as well, and they tend to be more specialised and, and focused. So. Again, it's sort of think, going right back to what we were saying at the beginning, thinking about what the purpose of your camp is and what, and even more broader than, uh, broader than that, really, thinking what is limiting me in terms of my performance at the moment. And uh, it, 
does tap into some of those things that we're talking about people's sort of technical limitations there you know if you descending is a, is an area of weakness for you that's probably costing you much more than your fitness uh, ever will in terms of performance but this extends sort of outside triathlon as well you know if you're an, an ultra runner that you'll get camps that are focused specifically on using poles um or going over technical terrain uh, and moving well over technical terrain downhill in navigation you know could all be the focus of a camp if they're things that are important to an event that you've got as an area race for this year and their limitations for you then that might be a better choice for you in terms of the camp than going abroad for a week although there's obviously an appeal to, to go into lanzarote for a week but really it's about priorities and what is it you want to get most from it and it might be that one of these more focused camps in the uk could actually be more suited to what to what you need for that for that particular time um so th that's always worth thinking about i think as well can i just say one thing it's just some spinning in my brain you know i said before about the brakes set up correctly and ladies brakes set up correctly just just realize that might sound like i'm saying ladies can't descend and that wasn't my point and it is a valid point this because i see this a lot on bike fitting ladies have much smaller hands generally mm -hmm. than men, and the fingers don't reach as far and when they're down on the drops so they're the hands are down in the curve bars, bits of the handlebars in the drops. The top, the, 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 you know, the first two fingers with those, you should be able to reach out and pull on the brake levers. And quite often they're barely touching the brake levers. So they can't actually pull the brakes when they're on the drops. And you can adjust the, the brake levers quite simply with an Allen key to, to move them in. Um, so they end up riding on the hoods holding the top and trying to brake from there because they can't reach the brakes. And that's just because of female geometry. I'm not talking about kind of skill level here, but it's just it's worth just a general point for, for for ladies who are going on training camps and descending mountains. It's a basic bike fitting thing to see if you can reach the um, the brake levers when your hands are on the drops. It's worth checking out. Or men with small hands. Or men with small hands or big bikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's an all points disclaimer there covered <laughs> but it's true in the fact that you know you may be a, a a gent who only rides with gents on the weekend your little social circle and you go out riding and then you find yourself on a camp and you ride in in a bunch of females and all of a sudden it's something you can think about sharing and trying to make sure everyone's so you know it's it is a it's an overall issue for everyone not just yeah you know yeah. but um Cool. I think we've uh, we've covered training camps. It's certainly me, got me sitting here in South Wales, where the sun has indeed buggered off, um, making me think about getting on a plane and going away. But um, does anyone know what the forecast is for Lanzarote this coming week? It's not sure. Do you want me to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'll, I'll message you every day. I promise. Pictures. Okay. Pictures. <laughs> Cool. I think that's it. Probably wrapped up nicely. Have a great week, Mark, when you're away. Will do. And uh, so it won't be next Friday. We'll have to record the Friday after, I guess. But I'll have lots of stories for you there. <laughs> Super. Brilliant. Thanks very much, gents. I hope the yeah, same you are as well next week. Until next time, I will see you then.